0: Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy.
1: For three hours, the defeated former president of the United States watched it all happen as he sat in the comfort of the private dining room next to the Oval Office while he was doing that brave law enforcement officer subject to the medieval hell For three hours, dripping in blood, surrounded by carnage, face to face with crazed mob that believed the lies of a defeated president.
2: The police were heroes that day. Donald Trump
1: lacked the courage to
2: act. So there you have it, Mike Murphy, uh, Joe Biden, uh, who was operating under the constraints of COVID, uh, making a speech to black law enforcement professionals via virtually... Uh, offering a little welcome message to Donald Trump, who's <laughs> returning to Washington today uh, to make his uh, first speech, his first visit since he kind of left in disgrace in Yeah, putting the old shiv
1: in. You know, it reminds me of the great line in Midnight Run where Dennis Farina, the great Chicagoan playing the mob boss, uh, sends his torpedoes and says uh, to meet the other character, says, why don't you meet him at the airport? And I think Biden yeah. kind of met Trump at the airport with a swift kick. And I thought, well done. But Trump's
2: on the defensive now. We'll talk about that. But uh, this was an exercise in what we in the business call bracketing—getting out in front of an event. You know, you're gonna, your opponent's gonna have right. and kind of framing it in your own terms. And no one, no one knows this better than uh, this exercise better than our guest today, Liz Smith, one of the great. Hacks, one of the great political warriors and on this show. An Hacks. Author now, too. We, we and, got a book to say and the author of the brilliant new mem- memoir, Any Given Tuesday, mm-hmm. just came out this week already, The Talk of the Town. Uh depending on what town you live in. Certainly in Washington list where you are, it's the talk of the town. So welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I have never been so honored to be called a hack in my life, especially yes. By the great David Axelrod, who I mention in my memoir, and I say belongs on the Mount Rushmore of great political strategists. So thank you for having me.
2: What about me? What am I, chopped liver? I didn't make the book? I'm not going on Mount Rushmore until Murphy is up there as well. (laughs) I would feel... I would feel that was a great injustice, but We're I, I appreciate. We're both fit in with the ball guys. She never really worked with you, Murphy. Telepark. Well, that's she, true. She, she, wor- <laughs> that's she true. works one side of the street.
0: We'll see how you do. We'll see how you do today, Murphy. By the end of the I'll, show, I'll, I'll you will judgment. be on Mount Rushmore.
2: By the end uh, of the show, you're going to say, "Mike Murphy belongs on Mount <laughs> Rushmore." But, but, Liz, that was a pretty good exercise in bracketing, wasn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, it was, and it sort of flips the script. On the GOP's attempt to sort of own the law and order brand. And the Republicans have been pretty successful in the last couple cycles of trying to use that um, brand, Democrats as sort of the party of lawlessness, the defund the police. And Biden has been very deft in turning that back around on the GOP. And um, I was heartened to see that speech today.
2: Yeah, it's pretty timely, Murphy, given the fact that the. uh... January sixth committee uh, uh, had their final episode of the first season. Yeah, the Uh, big
1: finish, the season ender.
2: Yeah, yeah, and the the season ender was very much focused on what Donald Trump was doing for that hundred eighty seven minutes when uh, before. Uh, you know, between the time that the insurrection broke out and the time that he actually asked people to disperse,
1: yeah, it's pretty clear he what he was doing. He was, you know, eating chicken fingers and rooting for the bad guys. You know, <laughs> just totally delaying any action. Well, even his staff, which has no shortage of yes people, are running around in an appropriate panic. So I think I think like a lot of these committee hearings, it gave people a pretty clear, understandable, accessible window into the choices he was making and who he really is. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, in in bump shop terminology, he's definitely got his frame bent here. And I, I don't think his politics will ever be the same. He might be able to win a Republican primary. I think conventional wisdom is he, he will if he runs. I don't believe that. Uh, you can see the Republican Star Chamber putting on the hoods, lighting the candles and saying, this is a slow pony and we got to move on, which is why those candidates are out, out sniffing around like raptors, sensing holes in the fence.
0: I agree with you. And one thing that I thought was really impressive about these hearings is, you know, it, none of us are naive to sort of the character of Donald Trump, but somehow they managed to paint a picture of him that was even more deranged and unhinged than than any of us really could have imagined, at least that I could have imagined. So um, kudos to them for that.
2: Yeah, well, the question is whether he comes, I mean, yes, there is that, uh, but there's something even more sinister, which is that uh, rather than deranged and unhinged, it it was calculating and, you know, sort of unrestrained uh, that, uh, you know, here was a portrait of a guy who just doesn't really, and we know this to be the fact, doesn't give a damn about rules or laws or norms or institutions and was willing to overrun even the most sacred uh, uh, rules and laws and norms and traditions of our democracy and unleash a violent mob on the capital of the United States to try and get his way. Um, So, you know, derangement may be the charitable explanation for what happened. I mean, that's what I guess that's what Merrick Garland's trying to figure out, huh? Yeah, I I
1: think it's be the decision's being made for him. Uh there's a point where he has to act, and I think we've crossed it. But with Trump like a true sociopath, you know, there there is no right or wrong. So therefore there is no high moral ground to avoid. It doesn't exist. It's just naked self interest, grievance, and insecurity. And and you can see he really was more than happy to have an armed mob go in there and declare the election invalid. So he's kind of got these ethical cataracts where he, I don't even if he knows it's wrong, you know, but right. it, that does mean he's crazy and does mean never should have been and can never be in the future president of the United States, clearly. And, you know, now, now the interesting thing, I, I, the thing about the hearings, and I think we've talked about it a little. It's working on two tracks. On one hand, it's a great therapy animal for Democrats who've always hated Trump. I'm right. I'm right. You know, and they are on Trump. But the way Liz Cheney, and Adam Kinzinger, and even some of the staff who've testified, they are talking in terms that address themselves to other Republicans. There's a primary going on uh, inside these hearings. And I think those rebels are having more success than Washington conventional wisdom would have ever thought a month before the hearings. And I think it's going to be seen as a turning point. And they're
2: heroes for it. I mean, the question is really, uh, I think we have a clip from Kinzinger on this. Does it does it move Republicans uh, or not? I mean, do do Republican because he's still sitting there with a close to 80 percent favorable rating among Republicans. Uh, so this, the changes that you're talking about, Mike, and you've been talking about it for some time are subtle, but they may be decisive.
1: The fall of the Habsburgs was subtle, too, like a crack moving through granite. But let's listen to Kinsinger, and then I'll pitch you what I, I okay. think it really means.
0: In terms of Republicans in general, you have kind of the bulk of Republican voters. This doesn't appear to be having, you know, a ton of impact. Maybe people are shifting more towards a potential for, I don't know, a Ron DeSantis. Trumpism isn't dying, even though Trump is becoming irrelevant.
1: So I just say it is true you have the 80 percent approval rating, but it it it. It's also true that within the 80%, you have now – you can debate if it's half or a bit more than half saying, but we need somebody else next time. You know, the gold watch thing is working there. It's like, you know, if you're a diehard Red Sox fan, but you're unhappy, you're not going to say, oh, I'm for the Yankees. You're going to say, we need a new pitcher. But the Red Sox hat isn't coming off, and that's where the party is.
0: I guess my question is, if you are, you know, one of those GOP – super gazillionaire, mega donors, if you are in the elite of the Republican Party, how can you really stand by? I'm not saying ethically, but from a political standpoint, how can you let um, Donald Trump still be the nominee in 2024? And I understand that um, you, you guys may not be able to put the crazy back in the bottle and that for years murphy when you were you know working for country club republicans as we affectionately used to call Mm -hmm. them that there was this element of crazy that you guys sort of kept in the basement like the gimp and pulp fiction but now the crazy's out and so um it's just a question for me as a democrat whether the republican party does have any mechanism to stop donald trump from running or you're going to have to rely on Merrick Garland or some divine intervention.
2: What a turn of events. Now the crazies are out and you're in the basement.
0: <laughs> I literally <laughs> am
2: in a basement yeah.
1: right now. Yeah, I know. You know I, I don't quite buy – I mean, I buy two-thirds of the premise. Here's the deal. It wasn't just country club. It, there was a broad conservative coalition of different wings that agreed that the Looney Tune anger wing would be let out once in a while in a presidential caucus, Iowa – or a Buchanan revolt in New Hampshire, get their 30% and then be slowly crushed. And there'd be a fight within the mainstream. Would it be kind of, you know, what flavor? Uh, so that that was the old, old equation. And what held it together was kind of an understanding that the people at the top of the bulk of the party were responsible patriots who knew they had a certain obligation, you know, to democracy, to all these, these shared values then trump came around and said crazy's in where you're crazy on your sleeve i'm crazy and that sent a big dog whistle and the thing blew up and now now we're trying to put it together so i don't think trump will be stopped by the star chamber but what's happened is new is the most powerful word in advertising and other people who are running on trump light harnessing some of the movement energy are now going to take them on because they're no longer afraid you got DeSantis. there are going to be others uh, and there's a plurality issue later when you get the primaries. But at least in the preseason, people are coming out in the daylight now. It, it's a very
2: different world. They can make the case now uh, th- uh, that is becoming clearer that, hey, he, you know, we like a lot of what he did. You know, nothing personal to him, but he's maybe too big a load. And I'll tell you, Mike, I want yeah, to just leave you back, r- right back to you because you've been talking about this for months, uh, really for years uh Or maybe just felt like years, but I think it's been uh, a long time. When you've been saying that you know Trump was attractive when he was uh, articulating other people's grievances, and now he's so consumed by his own and looking backward right. that it becomes uh, a uh, it becomes an unappealing package. He's coming to Washington today to make a speech that's been advertised as sort of forward looking and an attack on Biden, <laughs> and not and we'll see. If he has the discipline, I mean, we'll know by the time, I guess, people listen to this. <laughs> you want to make a bet? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, the oh, problem is he, 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 can, he can't. he Yeah, he'll be him. Help. So, by the way, Pence is coming to town today, too, speaking at the Heritage Foundation. Yeah,
1: they have a cool Cold War,
2: yeah. They do. And his whole message is, we've got to talk about the future, not the past. So I think that's become kind of a hinge point in this whole discussion.
1: No, totally. I don't think Trump has the discipline to do it, and part of what the— the uh, the senior R's are looking at Trump and saying, God, are we going to nominate the one guy Biden could beat? A bag of horseshoes would have a better chance. This guy, he grabs all the attention and he hurts it. You know, this Pence thing, the other thing insiders are talking about, Pence went to Arizona on the same day as Trump. Right. But there was a dog whistle within what they did. Pence went and campaigned in the suburbs with the candidate who can win the election. Trump went out to Paradise Valley, which is total base Republican done in a general election so he could get a bigger crowd. And, you know, the operative world, the the buzz went out that, look, Pence understands this about winning going forward. Trump, it's a therapy exercise. And so I don't know if Pence will be the guy, but they are playing that piano really well. And I think in Arizona, in the upcoming primary, uh, it's a three-point race now, and all the movement Uh, It is not with Insane Carrie Lake, the newscaster where they changed the prompter from B for Obama to B for Trump. (laughs) Uh, I think she's going to lose. And and Pence, just like in Georgia, will be on the right side of that bet, too. I think Mark Short and that crowd are doing a good job.
2: Governor Ducey's uh, on the Pence side of the fight as well here.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I mean, some thoughts there. You, I read the Politico story yesterday um, where you had sort of advisors saying that Trump was going to give a forward looking speech. And it did have strong vibes of from when he was in the administration and his advisors sort of treated him like a child and sort of tried to guide him through these clips. Um, and it reminded me, you know, of the never ending infrastructure week. Right. Never happened. Um so I am dubious that he is going to be giving this grand forward looking speech. Trump's idea of a forward
1: looking speech is here's my vision of the future. I'm going to get even with these people. Mike exactly. Pence. The electors who stole it from me, the media, and he'll just do the
2: same routine. Yeah, we'll 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 know shortly but
0: I don't find Pence and what he's doing to be super effective, you know, t- speaking of bracketing. Um you know, he, it 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 feels a little bit like a passive aggressive ex girlfriend or boyfriend. Um, he's not really addressing the elephant in the room. And, um, like I, I think it's great that he's going out there to help lift up maybe more sane Republicans, but I don't really see much of a future for him in the Republican party. And I'm not sure. That he is really maximizing this moment the way that he could be. But
2: no, I I listen, I think he is trying to walk a very difficult path. Yeah. And I think that part of it is predicated on maybe the possibility that Trump doesn't run. Oh, I think a a big chunk of it is. Mike Pence's base has always been among evangelical Christians right, this is the who are now who are now, you know, very devoted to Trump because of some of the things that Trump uh, did in office. Uh, so he wants to present himself as an alternative without going so far as to alienate the people who he might need later on.
1: Yeah, but I would tell you, Pence is doing two things under the surface. It may not make him the nominee, but he could be very catalytic. He is telling the evangelical vote where he has iron credentials that it's time to walk away from Trump and look forward. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's somebody else. And I think there is an open pitch there. There's always been some tension under the surface. Never loved Trump, but they have loved the policy agenda. Well, they can get that from other people. And second, he's showing the regulars that the focus ought to be winning and Trump doesn't fit that equation. Uh, So will he be the nominee? You know, we're see. there's some headwinds, but he's playing the Mike Pence cards the best he can, I think, in the long term, not so much the tactical press of right now.
0: But one thing you said, Mike, that I'm curious about is you said that these Republicans are coming out of the woodwork to criticize Trump. And yeah, sure. We know that DeSantis is building a team behind the scenes and he might have bracketed Trump's um, Arizona rally by going on. Um, Laura's show on Fox the other night but you really haven't seen a ton of prominent Republicans come out and speak out against Trump so um,
1: well they don't have to though just running is an act of aggression the running in the preseason remember 80% say Trump did a great job, don't criticism, but a majority of those say, but I'm shopping for somebody new next time. I don't want to go to the sequel. One cannonball run is enough. So I, if I were working for DeSantis, I've said this in other places, don't go attack Trump. That's just, you're. that's fun for the Dems and the media. Just right. eclipse him and then force Trump to do what he's doing, which is I'm going to announce tomorrow. I'm. He's looking so weak now. That's kryptonite for him. I mean, a long game here, not not for, you know, the headline
2: next week. Let me ask you guys some, something else that I think is really a tell. I don't know that I could find a Republican who is eager for Donald Trump to announce his candidacy before November because yep. they're worried that he'll be an issue in the general election. Well, he'll sure as hell be an issue in the general election if he's the nominee of the <laughs> right. Republican Party for president. And I think that's a tell about some erosion uh, of, uh, uh, of confidence in him, uh, as a potential nominee. The other thing, Mike, that uh, that has to be, uh, concerning Republicans and robbing them of a little co- uh, confidence is money, which is really a weird,
0: yeah. you know, as the Democrat, I mean,
2: the, this is everything's been turned on. Is that Liz turned, uh, Liz talked before about the country club re- Republicans losing control and everything else. One of the reasons the Republican Party was so, uh, Dominant, in in, where it was dominant, was because it, it won the money game. That's not happening anymore.
1: Yeah, great story in the New York Times about this, and there's been a lot of talk in the Republican operative world. So our money comes from three piles. What we used to call direct mail money, now it's direct response money because so much of it comes in online. Kind of the middle dollar money. Uh, which is kind of the traditional country club money. You guys call it on the Dem side because you always want to get to class four. You just can't not do it. And then (laughs) then the mega dollars, uh, which, of course, is always the obsession – and both parties rely on them. I mean, if I'm a super rich Republican donor and I'm mad at Trump, you know the ultimate move I could make is change my name to Soros and go join the other side of the mirror equation. But I, thought you, were a, some,
2: I, th- I thought you were a super rich Republican donor who can't stand Trump. That's not, uh, that's uh, not uh, true. Uh,
1: two out of three is not bad.
2: <laughs>
1: if you give money to him, you only encourage him, you know. Uh, and they blow it all on consultants. Don't get me started. So but, but the point being, Trump does have a block of super rich you like. You also have a bunch of pragmatic super rich and then, you know, or let's call them large dollar donors. And then you have some who are are sniffing around. I mean, I used to work for a guy who was regularly uh, a really impressive human, by the way. I'm not going to mention the mystery name, but was good for 10 to 12 million a year for the Senate races and everything. Not a dime now. Maybe Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. Uh, no. Maybe yeah, Evan well, McMullen in Utah. Everything else is going to the Dems. And so there is a rebellion there. What Trump has doubled down on a few super dupers, you know, around yeah. the cult of Trump. But again, another tell. There was a political story, uh, which I think we mentioned last week, with Trump doing this series of dinners around the country, sucking up to donors. That's never been Trump's equation. It's always been, you come to me. Now he's going to them because he feels weak and vulnerable. And he's right. He's not the it thing in donor world anymore. They're now looking at DeSantis.
2: Overall, Liz, you know, uh, Democrats, because of small donor online donations, are dwarfing Republicans. And that accelerated in the second quarter. And I have to assume a lot of it came in late after the Supreme Court decision on, on choice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and it, it does, it flips the script on sort of what we expect in the midterms, right? And what we expected in this midterms that all the, um, enthusiasm would be on the Republican side, all the small dollar enthusiasm would be on the Republican side. But we did see in the last election, especially in these Senate races, that like, that money isn't everything. You know, um, Amy McGrath raised what, like $54 million in yeah, Kentucky, Kentucky, yeah. Got shellacked um you know we lost with uh against
2: mitch mcconnell
0: yeah against Mitch mcconnell but we also saw similar things in south carolina and other Mm -hmm. states and um it is you'd definitely rather be tim ryan than jd vance right now but i i do wonder if you know jd vance blake masters people like that are you know not really juicing their fundraising machines because they are relying on Peter Thiel to just sort of ride right in, be their sugar daddy. Peter and- Peter
2: Thiel from uh, the the big Republican donor from Silicon Valley, who's basically the sponsor of JD Vance and uh, and, and Blake, Blake Masters, Masters. Masters. Yeah. in yeah. Arizona. Yeah. So uh, maybe that's maybe and that's Liz- good. and I certainly agree with you on the money point, which is money is great. It's not everything. Yeah. yeah. All the king's
1: yeah. dollars and all the king's cents. You know, in a year like this. Uh, Ryan is a good example. He's running a very good Democratic campaign. He's doing great right. on fundraising because if you're a star statewide character, Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you, you can you can raise a lot of money against Republican Boogman. The problem is in a wave election, you know, a twenty foot wave of water will break through a stack of dollar bills, and we're, we'll see what happens.
2: How big will the wave be? Well,
1: that's the question. You know, is it ebbing a little? Biden's got a little offense now. Finally, you know, it it, it move of geriatric speed, but it's here. Uh, drug prices, same-sex marriage, the semiconductor bill, all good stuff for him that may actually pass and, you know, undo this sad sack loser thing that's crippled him. Uh, and the, the I think in all these bills, he can go on offense as a bumper sticker issue. Uh, made in America, semiconductors, not from, you know, foreign countries right, and right. everything it's else. It, so yeah. we'll see if it gives him that needed geritol jolt here that he's desperate for <laughs> uh, to put these races back in
2: play.
0: Okay, uh, I'm, I'm gonna just. Oh, blow you like Geritol joke? Come on,
2: just just as a threshold. <laughs> she's she's too. She doesn't even know what Geritol is.
0: I, I was about to say. I do. I, yes. I think I think we've I get the run into it.
2: But... A... Well, we're talking to off-year voters. There
1: are 108. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> I do think that the red wave is ebbing, and we've seen that in um the generic ballot numbers. And there are mm-hmm. two things that I think um. Well, I think the Dobbs decision has really been a big factor in that. And I think it's um, done two things that have helped sort of ebb the red wave, which is one, you know, maybe inspire more Democrats to get off their asses. Axelrod, you know, Democrats are not great at voting in midterms. They are Mm -hmm. um, they're presidential campaign voters, not midterm voters. And uh, that obviously was a quite a problem that you were familiar with in 2010.
2: They came out in 2018.
0: They sure, they sure did. They sure did. But so I think for Democrats who have gripes about Biden or weren't feeling inspired that um, this has raised the stakes for them and is, you know, juicing them to maybe go out, turn out to vote, give money, et cetera. I do also think that it helps with um, what I call like the biden Youngkin voters, The, you know, the sort of middle of the fence swing voters who voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but 2021, you know, um, voted for Glenn Youngkin in the Virginia governor's race that for a lot of these people, they could do it then. um, But this abortion, now that abortion's been thrown to the states and is, you know, this is a four alarm fire. That it's gonna it's gonna be hard for them to hold their nose and vote for a Republican, and I think that it brings a bunch of those voters back into our corner.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the question will be the Senate races. It is I think the House is pretty much done,
2: but it's, it's a question of margin though, Mike, and that yeah. that actually matters because right. if it's a small margin in the House, it's a it's a nightmare for Kevin McCarthy, and he may not be Speaker of the House.
1: Uh, I'll put my chip down for big enough margin that McCarthy, the, the, the R's will be happy there. Okay. But between lame candidates and the potential, because you still got the big hammer of inflation, interest rates are going to get raised, yes. uh, economic pain, will will that generic punish Biden and the Democrats wave lift the Ozzes? Uh, and, and and folks like that. I think Nevada's gotten better for the D's on the Roe issue. It's about the most pro-choice state in America, more so even than here in California. So that's the question to me, and we'll see. And that would be big. If the Dems yeah. hold on to the Senate, it, it'll be Fort Democrat against a wipeout, and that would be a huge accomplishment. It would be good news for Biden.
2: I want to ask you guys about something, and we've talked about this in previous weeks. Now we have a new iteration of it, uh, which is the, uh, the Democratic Democratic Tactic of choice in this election cycle, which is to run ads in Republican primaries, you know, excoriating uh, the candidate that they want to run against for being too conservative for their state or their and now their congressional district, thus signaling to conservatives in the Republican primary that, hey, this must be our guy. He's pro-Trump. He's uh, anti-abortion. He's, uh, you know, the Democrats are calling him extreme. Must be our guy. Uh, now they're doing it in a district in Michigan uh, where a freshman uh, representative Peter Meyer is running. And if you remember that name, it's because he was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach uh, President Trump. And I have to tell you, um, I understand that it's hardball politics. Nobody plays hardball politics uh, better than you two guys. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, it didn't sit well with me. Uh, first of all, Meyer's going to, he's probably going to lose that primary anyway, but uh, it just seemed, un, it, it felt, it felt wrong. Now that's an unhacky thing to say.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's toxically cynical. No, it's hard for all of us to like come out against a dirty, rotten political trick. <laughs> uh, but the problem, this used to be done a lot, a lot on the dem side, a little bit on the Republican side. You know, Gray Davis did it out here in California in 2002. McCaskill did it. But it's different now. Mm-hmm. The stakes are higher. I mean, if I were a Democratic donor to know that now between the governor races in Maryland, Illinois, Arizona, you know, there are about 50 Pennsylvania. million. Pennsylvania for sure. 50 million bucks spent elevating crazy people. To a position where there are long shot possibilities. I would be angry about that. I don't think it's right. And Meyer's a damn hero. You know, it, it, anyway, so I, I'm with you. This, this is playing with uranium and anthrax here for, for cynical purposes and enough's enough. Now, Liz, you can defend dirty, rotten scheming here.
0: Look, look, if, um, if anyone, anyone who reads my book any given Tuesday,
1: available on Amazon.com.
0: Available and at your local bookstores um, knows that uh, probably no one loves playing with fire uranium more than I do. Um, and so not, the problem is sometimes you do get burned. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of pearl unnecessary pearl clutching around some of these tactics. Um, politics ain't beanbag, and let's be real. Like yes, let's look at the Pennsylvania governor's race. Mastriano is um, you know an abomination. But it's not like the other candidates who were running were Tom Ridge. Um, It's not like they were, you know, Ronald, even Ronald Reagan. Um, And I'm in a lot of these races. I'm pretty sure that the Republican base would have chosen these candidates with or without the Democratic intervention. I will say that the Meyer thing doesn't quite sit doesn't quite sit right with me um, because uh you know probably going to lose otherwise he took a courageous stand if you are now a republican like him in the house what is the incentive um to to do that what is the incentive to cross the aisle ever what um if we don't even give them like the permission structure to do it and it's only a d plus 3 district and we all know that you know, I think that the the bubble here is going to be like D plus 8, D plus 10, D plus 12. And so that is a D plus 3 district is a district that likely turns Republican in the next cycle. So um, I think it's it sets a bad precedent that we you know are giving money against him, but likely handing the seat to a complete crazy.
1: Yeah, but I'll tell you, there's still the risk in a wave year that one of these kooks could win. You know, it's like, well, let's uh, let's give Hitler 20 million. He'll use it for speeches. He'll be unpopular and we'll beat him, probably. But, you know, you always got to be worried about the 10 percent cataclysmic outcome and the stakes are higher now. And, you know, I I listen to so many pious Democratic speeches about democracy going to hell and I, I shake my head. Yes. I agree with them. And then to be running a $50 million operation to elevate kooks, which final rant, and I'll shut up about this. You also take people's choice away. A reasonable voter no longer has a choice in Maryland. The Republican candidate was very good there. You know, you ideologically pick a side, but no choice at all.
2: uh, You know, I'm mostly on your side of this argument, and I'm certainly on your side of this argument here. Uh, But the reason this tactic works is there is an audience in the Republican primary for it. I mean, they're not elevating candidates who are unpopular among Republicans and jamming them down their throats, they're telling people, guess what? There's a, a candidate in the primary who reflects exactly no, what no, you're No, no, I thinking. get it. I get it.
1: that's a yep. fair point. But for those of us outnumbered on the fire brigade in the Republican Party trying to fight <laughs> off fascism here and we're surrounded, but we're having some firefighting success that have the D's walk in and throw a bunch of gasoline on the fire, I can just tell you it's not so helpful for the bigger cause. In a yeah, handful no. of places.
0: Part of the bigger cause, though, is that the Republican Party can't try to stiff arm Trump and say he's an anomaly. The Republican Party does need to own it's crazy. It does need to own the extremes, and they are voting for these people in the in the party. And I know it might be frustrating for you, Mike, but um, in the for the long term, for Democrats, I think it is an effective strategy to show that Trump was an anomaly and that this is today's Republican Party.
2: More than that, it may be important, Mike, for for your cause uh, to show Republicans that if all of these candidates lose, that maybe crazy is not the, the thing that sells.
1: Yeah, I guess. But it, it is risky to elevate nuts at this time in American democracy. Yeah. It is darkly cynical. And the Dems are get, not only giving away their high ground – this is coming now from our side and there are democratic kooks and now we're start funding them. And so great. We have an arms race.
2: This one, I agree with Liz. This one doesn't sit well. This one, because Meyer basically, uh, he may well have sacrificed his career by doing the right thing and standing up for democracy. And to me, uh, like in my, I mean, I, to me that gives him a pass. Uh, you know, you know, they, he should not be, uh, subjected to, even if you believe this is a, a, you know, this is as, as Liz says, politics ain't being bagged, this is an appropriate tactic and so on. You got to draw the line somewhere. I think this is where, if you can't find the line elsewhere, this is where the line should have been drawn.
1: Yeah. I, I, I can't think of a brighter line and they've crossed it. It's done. Talk about a, a line. I'm going to cross the line to commerce here. Uh, cause we're burning up the clock quick. And we got a few more things in the mailbag. So, Liz, pitch your book. Tell me more about it. I I I know the basic idea. I haven't bought it yet. Normally, on political books, I wait for the ice show that inevitably comes a few years later. But I'm very interested in your book. I'm going to buy it. But tell me about it.
0: Well, I wanted to, I I wanted to write a book that really demystified politics, that pulled back the curtain because it is still an incredibly opaque industry. You know, to every and you guys probably get this, but from the day I started working in politics and now 17 years later, almost every dinner party dinner conversation I have starts as, well, how'd you get involved in politics? What's it really like?
2: We're, we're never actually invited to dinner parties, but I'll take your word for it. We're on the off list.
0: (laughs) So I wanted to really show people what it's like behind the scenes because politics has never mattered more, mattered more than it matters right now. Um, we, uh, you know, we certainly saw that with the COVID pandemic. We saw that with January 6th. We um, saw that with the Dobbs decision. And whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're apolitical and will never, ever tune into um, Hacks on Tap. Oh,
1: perish the thought. You're lost. I know. Yeah.
0: Politics touches your life and it touches every aspect of your life. So I, I want this to be a very accessible book for people to read, to, to learn more about the process um, and hopefully get them involved. But I'm going to be honest with you. I, I do go through the good, the bad, and the ugly of politics in here. Um, and some sage advice I got when I was writing this book was if you want to write a good political book, you need to be honest. You need to, you can't pull punches. You've got to be willing to light other people on fire and light yourself on fire. And I do all of those things, and so um, I talk about some of my triumphs, and I want people to learn from those, and some of the great strategies I've employed over the years. You know, like the media strategy for Pete, but I also want people to learn from some of my some of my mistakes. All right, you set me up, or
1: actually, you got a question because I want to hear a
0: mistake.
2: Well, well, no, I, I have read the book, and I and okay. and I, I also know Liz very well. Uh, so there are a couple of things that I want to uh, to talk about. But we should start with Pete because the one as she refers to him uh in her book uh Liz I think more than anybody else uh was instrumental other than Pete himself was instrumental in his rise. One of the things that you've done well, Liz, in your career is you've you've if you were a uh in finance you'd be known for uh picking uh unappreciated assets and uh watching them uh watching them rise that is that was the case here uh now he's an appreciated asset uh so what happens next uh there was a poll out this morning the granite state poll uh you probably saw it Uh, it was a it was a, a unfortunate. Poll for the president because only twenty percent of the Democrats there want him to run for re reelection. But in a trial heat with everyone in, uh, the president only got sixteen percent. The person who was on top was uh, Pete Buttigieg at seventeen. Which, by the way, may make cabinet meetings a little uncomfortable. Tell me what the future holds here.
0: Yeah, well, as you can imagine, I think about a hundred different, a hundred different people texted me that poll this morning. And New Hampshire was a great state for Pete in 2020, but um, I am not putting a lot of stock in any of these polls right now. And as we all know, things can, things change pretty quickly. And four years or two years, two and a half years out from New Hampshire um, before 2020, Pete was at zero percent. So, um, uh, you know, polls are polls. I, and the honest answer is, I don't know what is next for Pete. I, he always had a mantra during the campaign that he found that his political success came from focusing on the job that was in front of him and doing his best at it. Um, and then he could sort of go from there because as we all know, it is very obvious when a congressman or a governor, um, starts angling for the next gig, you know, they start running those out of state ads or doing whatever whatever those silly tactics are, and it would be very out of character for Pete to to be doing anything like that right now. So what he's going to be doing next, and which is really important, is selling the hell out of this infrastructure bill all across the country, and there's no better messenger for it. Um, he's got to sell the hell out of the Biden agenda because I uh, Hopefully, we can all agree that he is the Democrats' best television interview communicator, Um, and he's shown that time after time.
2: Let me just ask you this, though. If Biden doesn't run, and I know he says he's going to, but if he doesn't, which is a real possibility, uh, you know, given his unique circumstances, if he does not run, isn't there going to be a ton of pressure on uh, Buttigieg to run?
0: So I and I know you and I have discussed this. I do think that Biden will run in 20. And I'm going to answer your question. I do think that Biden will run. And we've seen no indication from either him or any of his advisors that he's not going to run. Now, OK, let's take your hypothetical. Will there be pressure on Pete to run? Um, yes. Do I know if he'll run? No. Do I hope he'll run? Yes, of course. You know, he was my choice in 2020. I think he's an extraordinary once in a generation talent. Um and I think he's a great leader. So I would love to see him run, but he has he himself has said that he doesn't know if he'll even ever run for office again.
1: I'm a big fan. He's a friend of mine. It's too early. Play the long game, Pete. The Michigan move is smart. It just needs time to work. That, that would be my two cents. Now, real quick, because we're almost out of time. Just quickly, a, a mistake you've – I've got a thousand of them. We have to do a three-episode special. But a mistake
2: that you learn the most from. That's coming up, by the way. Yeah.
0: And this was something, you know, Axe and I have talked a lot about. But um, it, probably the biggest mistake I learned from was in my time advising Andrew Cuomo um, during the sexual, sexual harassment you know, scandal and investigation he was facing. Um, I'm a very loyal person. I run toward crises. I face PR crises of my own. And so I sometimes, um, you know, uh, project my own things onto other people um, because I know how it feels to be isolated and in these moments of crisis. And so I did run toward that crisis. And uh, the governor was someone I considered a father figure, a mentor, someone I loved, I trusted. And I, um, you know, I time after time, there were red flags along the way where it was clear he was not being truthful um, with his advisors and maybe even himself. But my sense of loyalty to him blinded me Um, and I conflated loyalty with integrity. Um, And I learned um, the hard way that. Uh, loyalty is very important, but it has to be earned loyalty, not blind loyalty, because I'm fine. I've got this book out. I'm traveling the country, but there are so many people that I, and I write about this in my book, who lost their livelihoods, who lost their reputations because they went out, you know, out of their way to help him and he didn't tell them the truth. And as a result, you know they're just you know collateral damage, and I don't even know if he cares one bit about them. So that's the one lesson I would I, I, I would say I want people to take away. Well,
2: lo- loyal, loyalty is a virtue, but it should be it should be a two way street.
1: Yeah, that's yes. something a lot
2: yep. of these pals do not know. You know, one interesting thing about uh, the Pete situation is you said he he's got to go out and just be uh, do his job. Well, in the furtherance of his job, he took some incoming. Uh, yesterday i think from none other than elizabeth warren who finished 3rd in that poll in new hampshire who uh, was uh, uh, urging him to do more about the airlines saying that we we've give, we gave the airlines all these subsidies and now they're canceling all these flights uh and i was wondering whether that was a bit of uh uh you know post uh, or pre 24 contingent skirmishing uh, and i suppose you will you will say no
0: well uh, a couple things i will say, say yes there, but- were some, there, there were some factual um issues with what she said you know the the deep, i'm not i'm not going to get deep into dot policy here but you know they have already issued fines against the airlines and you know pete has a mayor versus a senator mentality um, and he believes in getting results. And that's why he met with the airlines, um, to try to work through this problem. He understands that if you just do fine after fine after fine, that the costs are going to be passed off to consumers. Um, and we've already seen results. Uh, everyone was expecting July 4th to be an apocalyptic moment. Uh, but cancellations have already been down about 20 25% okay. and okay. It's, not no enough. it's not okay no flacking. okay we got okay. it okay. okay but then one no, so so, so Murphy I'm taking that you
2: send the invoice I'm, to Pete. I'm taking, about I'm taking that as I'm taking that as a yes and we should move
1: well, what, on to what? yeah Elizabeth no, no. Warren is the kids get off my lawn candidate of the democratic primary she's looking for attention he played it right
0: and i got to tell you she's someone whose brand i don't think was enhanced by her 2020 campaign and it's, okay. it's going right. to right. it's gonna be tough to this run. It's going to be tough to run. This is like in the a future. prison
1: shiving. You've, you've already got it in twice. It, it, We're going it, for 18 here. It's going to be
0: tough to run in the future when All you right. come in third in your home state right you know? Right,
1: exactly. Okay. We'll put you down as undecided on Liz Warren for this, president. This
2: is, if you read the book, you will recognize. The Liz Smith you just heard from, because she is a relentless warrior. I, I like Elizabeth Warren, by the way, and I think she's very bright. And I think she, you know, she raises a lot of, a lot of important issues, but, uh, because Liz is a finder of undiscovered talent. Uh, and I want to know, there's so much talk about, gee, that, that the, the, the uh, Democratic party, the leadership is a, a, a gerontocracy and so on. Uh, talk about the young talents that, Give me a few names of people who you think we should be keeping an eye on who might emerge here, uh, as leaders of the party in the coming years.
0: Right. Well, the Democratic Party has always been seen as the party of the future. And now we need to start looking a little bit more like the party of the future. So I've been helping out a few, um, people, uh, who I think are, who represent the future that I would encourage everyone to check out. Um, Senator Mallory McMorrow in michigan is an absolute start yeah
2: she made quite a uh, she made quite a uh, splash with her speech in front of the michigan chamber yeah. when she was attacked by an opponent on cultural grounds
0: and she's nowhere near done yet and she is getting invitations from state parties across the country to come in and address their big dinners um mayor, you know you know i cannot resist a good young midwestern mayor yes um Mayor Aftab Purval in Cincinnati is a total star and is already making his mark. There has been, um, you know, brought new life to the c- city of Cincinnati and is implementing, you know, much needed reforms. Um, Quentin Lucas, Mayor Quentin Lucas in Kansas City, another great young star. Um, Colin Allred, a congressman from the Dallas mm-hmm. area, of t- uh, Dallas area is also another great young star okay. and what do these people have in common they're all <laughs> under the age of 40 but they're also all pretty pragmatic they're not you know um extremists they're not bomb throwers and so i think that that should be the future of the party
2: all right well everybody's ri- written these names down uh, probably their their online uh contributions will explode after (laughs) okay we've raised $11 for him from our stingy listeners now it's the
1: mailbag Okay, if you have a mailbag question, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget the magnificent, totally free Hacks on Tap newsletter. It comes out twice a week. Gibbs and I do it, full of gossip and innuendo and stuff we don't get to in the podcast. You get it by email. All you got to do is go to hacksontap.bulletin.com to sign up at hacksontap at bulletin.com. All right, Brother Axelrod, this is a question from Dennis. I've been super intrigued by Governor Newsom of California's ad buys in Florida and Texas. What's the strategy and goal here? Is it a wise use of resources, and what are the potential benefits if any?
2: I don't think it can be read as any other in any other way than sort of a message to the political world that he is um that he's considering running for president, which isn't a surprise if Biden doesn't run. Uh, going down to Florida, look, De- DeSantis is the flavor of the really the flavor of the year uh, among Republicans, and he has gotten there by being, uh, you know, flagrantly aggressive on uh, on cultural issues, uh, which is uh, which is uh, chum for the Republican primary uh, voter, but enrages. Democrats. And so I think Newsom was trying to signal that he, he has the muscularity to take on uh, a uh, DeSantis if that was, if that's the matchup that emerges. Personally, I, I think it was too uh, overt. And, yeah. uh, and I, I, I would not have advised doing that. This looks to me like the, um, like the hobby horse of uh, uh, consultants who are, content knowing that their man is going to win re-election overwhelmingly in California and can't wait to get on to the next chapter.
1: <laughs> yeah, a little, little too much money and time on their hands. It, it's gimmicky and very on the nose, as we say in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, and, and it's also like how he got on Truth Social, you know, Trump's um, social media site. It's It's very transparent. It feels very thirsty to me, very gimmicky. And if you really want to elevate yourself with Democrats and engender, you know, loyalty, support, whatever it is, you know, take that money and, and throw it into some races where it can make a difference. Don't, you know, just light it on fire in, in Florida and Texas media markets.
1: Yeah, a little hint to Newsom, use your easy in the bag reelect to to. Put out some interesting ideas and policy, get noticed, and then run for president a little later. It's a little rude, a little early and gimmicky.
2: You're not billing for that advice, are
1: you? (laughs) No, it's an in-kind. So
2: it's $5 on his report. Liz, someone named Trixie asks, uh, must be from, uh, as a center-left voter in Wisconsin, I'm at a loss where my primary vote would make the most difference. Do I vote for for less insane R candidates if I can find them, or more centrist D candidates? And of course, a lot of this is around the Senate race there in Wisconsin and who Democrats nominate to face Senator Johnson.
0: Yeah, I mean this is um, a no brainer for me. Uh, Cast your vote for the moderate um, Democrat who can win the race. We need more reasonable Democrats. We need more Democratic senators, period. Um, uh, But we need more reasonable Democrats in our party. You know, the Democratic Party cannot be defined by the squad and by the far left. And the way that we can sort of reorient the party and um, make sure that it is a majority party is by electing more reasonable Democrats who can win elections and um, articulate views that are shared by the majority of the American people. Well, you didn't give a name, though. You they didn't ask for one either. So. That's correct.
2: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Just to put a button on this, the race for Senate is basically boiled down to the lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, on the Democratic side, who's a very dynamic, charismatic uh candidate, we'll viewed lose more as a fall. candidate of the left. Well, that's that's the that's the fear that people have articulated. Polls show him and. The guy he's dueling, uh, uh, Alex Lazary who is the son of the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, they're in a very, both, uh, I guess Lazary was trailing Johnson by a few points. Barnes was ahead by a few points, but it's really a very close race, and it's a close race in the primary, and we'll see what happens. Now, Mike Murphy. Yes. A guy named Barry asks, given Trump, Given that Trump has burned bridges with many of his former staffers, if he runs again, who would work for him? And you feel free to rule yourself out. <laughs> I'm going to be careful of this question because Barry
1: might be a wannabe actor who's really an assassin. So I don't want to visit. Uh, no, it's a good question. A, a lot of the Trump people kind of went along on a career basis uh, and now there is some regrets. They've also seen it may not be the greatest career move. And I think there are going to be other chance uh, choices. So I think you're going to see more diehard yes men as opposed to situational yes men and women around Trump this time. And some of the old faces will not be back. Kind of a mutual decision unless he wins New Hampshire. Then they will all try to slide under closed doors to get their gigs back.
2: Yeah, I mean, he still he still has a core of uh of loyalists who have uh, stuck to him but oh yeah um uh, but it, it will be a trimmer team uh than he had before and a, and a more uh and i think a more pointed one i don't
1: you yeah, know it could
2: be crazier that's the problem yes. it, it could yeah. be like you're right sir nuclear weapons i don't think there's any question about that i mean yeah. trump 2.0 is going to be you know i've said it before sort of the The Delta variant of democracy, you know, a thousand times more virulent, a thousand times less restrained. And the people who go with him are going to reflect him.
1: But a lot less contagious is my bet. We'll find out.
2: Yes, that's good. I
1: like that. Well, one good metaphor deserves another.
2: We haven't done it in a long time, but I know, Mike Murphy, you have a last call. So, Jeff, hit it.
1: Okay, we are going to make worldwide news right here on Hacks on Tap, as promised in the newsletter. I have been following U.K. politics for a long time, and as our smart listeners across the globe, including in the United Kingdom, know, we're coming down to the big finish of the Tory leadership race in the U.K., the way it works is an election not unlike a speaker's election here where all the politicians vote in large groups of candidates with the bottom finishing candidate dropping off until it gets to the top two, which happened. Now it goes to sort of a primary among card-carrying members of the conservative party. There are almost 200,000 of them. They're going to vote by mail. They can vote online, and by early September, one of the two candidates, Rishi Cernak, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, or Liz Truss, the current Foreign Secretary, will win. She's ahead in the early, somewhat unreliable polling, and become the Prime Minister. Just 190,000 people will pick for $60 million. Fascinating system they have, but here's the big news. Being a slippery hack, I checked the fine print. It turns out you don't have to be a U.K. citizen to join the Conservative Party and vote. So I now am an undecided voter. I went online. I put down my 25 quid. I actually threw in another 75 pounds to pay for the embarrassment I'll probably cause the good party. And I'm going to vote. So we have a big listenership in the UK. Rishi, Liz, I know you're listening. My vote is up for grabs. We are inviting you to come on for a quick 10-minute interview on Hacks on Tap, both of you. You will speak with British accents. And because we're Americans, we think that makes you really smart and give you only softball questions. You can't lose. And whoever impresses us and our vast army of followers around the world the best will get my Tory vote for leader. So this could be the whole thing. We hope you do it. It'll be a lot of fun. You can email us at hacksontap at gmail.com, and we'll have a contest.
2: You're a guy who just 30 minutes ago was lecturing against sneaky backdoor political tricks. And now you're urging this one. Well, yeah, because I'm wondering about where is the consistency?
1: Well, those were in America. This is a foreign nation, <laughs> albeit one I love and that we have a special relationship with. And by the way, I can't vote in the real election, nor would I. This is only the leadership election, and maybe they're changed the rules uh, because they're letting the uh, lowbrow Americans in. But it could be a lot of fun. Love to have you on the show. So, Fox, let's go out with a salute to our our yeah, magnificent to put our bowlers on and, and ally. Stand up, <laughs> Axelrod. <laughs> Liz, thank you for joining our uh, uh, paper today. I'm wiping a tear
2: from my eye, Liz, there you as go. we from say 1914.
1: We don't have to pay a royalty. That's why we used it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, it was a pleasure joining you guys. Any given, Tuesday, yep. any
2: given Tuesday, any given Tuesday, any given Tuesday, buy early and often. It's a great book by a great woman, and we'll see you again soon, Liz.
1: Definitely on the Hacks on Tap reading list. Go check it out.
0: Great. Thank you.